much here for us to cover and to see. And I pray that this is a blessing to you. It's a, a delight to me to go through this. Um, hope again that this has just been a, a, a wonderful day for you and a wonderful week as you've considered coming to this fourth chapter of Ruth. Uh, we've moved through the first three chapters and, and there's been this, these tremendous truths that we've looked at. We've seen, we've seen God's faithfulness in such a special way. And that is so important for us because each of our lives is full of challenges of their own. Is that not what Matthew says in Matthew 6? For sufficient for today is its own trouble. And I think we can all relate to that. If not today, we praise the Lord for that, but perhaps tomorrow. And whatever may come, we understand that it is trusting on God. It is realizing His amazing faithfulness and holding fast to that. And this is what we've seen. We've seen faithfulness exemplified in two who love the Lord, in Boaz and Ruth. And we'll see more of that tonight. We've seen this concept that was, that was forward-looking as we thought about the, the Redeemer, the kinsman Redeemer, and how that is a picture of Christ. And here in the Old Testament, back in the time of Judges, in the midst of what is arguably some of the greatest wickedness of the nation of Israel. I mean, let's consider what they had just gone through. They've been through the wilderness generation, 40 years, over 2 million people that have died because of their unfaithfulness to God. And now a new generation enters the land with Joshua. And there but a very short time... And all of a sudden, Joshua passes from the scene, the judges begin, and it's these cycles of faithlessness and of judgment, and then of pleading to the Lord for relief, which he brings. And immediately upon bringing the relief, they are faithless again. And God brings judgment, and then they cry out, and again he relents. And it's just this ever-ongoing cycle, and amidst that, here in this crazy time there are these two people that show this wonderful aspect of faithfulness and this picture is pointed forward of the one who will be the ultimate redeemer boaz of course being that picture of our redeemer the lord jesus christ we've seen this beautiful word hesed steadfast love or loyal love and how the word love even the hebrew word love not used in this text but the love of god often translated as kindness just keeps coming up and there is this beautiful picture that's painted for us now a question came up that i want to discuss quickly it discussed our last message in ruth in ruth chapter 3 and verse 15 and i mentioned there that there was a textual issue in 315 where at the end of verse 15 it says then she went into the city and i mentioned how in the original hebrew that that is he that there is a transition in the gender of the pronoun and I explained that, that the reason the, the Hebrew does this is for a point of emphasis. And I mentioned that in your Bibles there's a footnote. Well, it was brought to my attention that some Bibles don't have that footnote. In the New American Standard, you would see that as uh, footnote, uh, excuse me, lost my place there, footnote number one in verse 15. But some Bibles don't have that footnote, and people have said, well, does that mean that, that my Bible is not accurate, or that there's errors in my Bible, and I need to address that. There are 
no errors if you don't have that footnote and that designation. That's a technical point. The Bibles that you have, no matter what version you have, whether you are using the King James, the New King James, the English Standard Version, even the NIV, or of course the NASB, our Bibles are more accurate because of the technical uh, the level of prowess and all of the further archaeological finds that have been poured into our Bibles. So we can have absolute certainty and authority and confidence in these words. So if there's something you see in your Bible and I mention that there's a footnote or something about that, I, you know, being the engineer, I kind of dig into some of those details. And if you see that they're not there, please come and talk to me about it. Because I, I need you to understand and to have that confidence to recognize the accuracy that exists in your Bibles and, and just to have confidence in that. Um, you know, the issue here is not a critical one, and, and perhaps we could have even just skipped it, um, but I, I just couldn't do that. I, I needed to bring it up to you today because it's my job to teach you about all of this, and if there's anything that I bring up that causes a little bit of a, oh, I don't know, then I, I expect you to come and talk with me about that. And there have been a few times where that's occurred, and, and I would uh, encourage all uh, whether it be something you see or just something you want to know more of, I'd love to talk with you about that. And of course, this is also a point that just supports using the same version that the, the, that the, the pastor or the teacher is using, because it just is easier. Of course, we typically are using the New American Standard. So any questions, please, please, please come and see me. All right, so tonight we move into the concluding chapter of this book. And, and this this reminds me of like the, the end of an amazing day of powder skiing. I love to powder ski. I mean, you got that soft snow blowing all over you. And, you know, you just, you've been out there making fresh tracks all day in the afternoon. I got Cameron smiling back there. And, um, you know, it just is so invigorating. Or maybe a wonderful movie. You know, a movie that you've seen over and over again. And, you know, you just love it and you can't wait to see the end. And then the end's coming and you're like, oh, I don't want it to be over. Because I, I know it, but I like it so much. You know, some of the, the girls like these new, I don't know what they are, the English movies or shows. My wife is, you know, she would chastise me for not remembering that. But anyway. But as we come to these cherished ends, the one thing we, we can always understand is that there is this, there's yet still more that lies out before us. There's the encouragement of what we've seen and that which we can yet look forward to. It's interesting as we move to the fourth chapter, there is a major shift that goes on in the book of Ruth. Up till now, Ruth has been very much kind of like a good chick flick. Now, I, I know, guys, I did say good chick flick. There are some of those. Um, and it's good even if you don't like him to go spend some time with your wife just doing that. But uh, Ruth has, has had this beautiful portrayal. There's been a very flowery component as we've moved through the first three chapters. We've talked about how the author, although very well may be a man, but he has a unique perspective and understanding of women, and he writes from a, a, a very deep perspective of a woman's point of view well we're going to change pretty dramatically here in the fourth chapter now we're going to move into a man's world and we're going to see all of a sudden a very male dominant culture which is the day in which this is written 
And, uh, and so we're going to learn a whole bunch about some components that previously we'd not seen much on. There is a focus on Jewish legal proceedings, which of course were very common to the people of that day. But we might not understand that. When we start thinking about taking off sandals and stuff and wearing other people's sandals, we might just say, you know, that's just kind of gross. I mean, I just I don't know about that. But there's a lot of meaning behind this, and we're going to see what that meaning is as we go through this fourth chapter. So let's charge on here in the fourth chapter of Ruth. And let me just to give you some of the overview before we read uh, our, our text tonight. I've titled our message, Sitting in the Gate. Sitting in the Gate. Now, we don't often think of being able to sit in a gate because gates in our world do not have seats. But we'll see what that's all about tonight. And really there are, there's three elements in our text. There's three features of redemption. And our main theme really is that each of these show a deeper level of honor for God. The three features of, of redemption that honor God tonight are the layout and the land and the lady. The layout, the land, and the lady. Two verses for each of those. So let's read through our verses and, uh, and jump into the middle of our text. Ruth chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He took Ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belongs to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and, a, and I am after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. The closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have the right of redemption for I cannot redeem it. Again, we see these three features of redemption which honor the Lord in our text tonight. And we want to remember the time frame of this message. This comes immediately after on the heels of chapter 3 and immediately on the heels of Ruth returning home to Naomi's house and Naomi making the proclamation at the end of chapter 3 wait my daughter until you know how the matter turns out for the man will not rest until he has settled it today so Naomi is telling Ruth to be patient she tells Ruth that Boaz will not rest until he settles the matter today. And the first two words of the Hebrew text verify this point. 
and, and they say, now Boaz. So immediately there's a continuation. Now, we might take that for granted and say, well, this is a narrative text, and it's just going on point by point, kind of through the events of a normal day. But remember that just back between chapters 2 and 3, we saw that there was almost four months that occurred because of the length of the wheat to the barley harvest. So the fact that this does come immediately on the heels is an important chronological point, but yet there are more elements of chronology that are more significant in the author's mind. Well, the first feature here in, our, in the layout is in verses 1 and 2. And in this layout, we see these three different aspects. The first aspect is the gate. The gate. This feature appears as the location of the layout, and the gate here is the first aspect. Now, you know what they say in real estate, right? Taxes, devaluation, and mortgage are most important. No, no, they don't say that. Location, location, location is most important. Well, the city gate was the location Now, let's discuss the gate so we have a little picture in our mindset because we really can't relate to a gate with a seat. I mean, how do you do that? I'm thinking of a gate in my yard and I've got a little white picket fence. Well, where do I sit? A gate in ancient times was completely different. The city gate was the main center of business. This is where everything happened. It was a passage in the perimeter wall of the city. And remember the construction of these city walls, often 40 to 50 feet tall, sometimes 6 to 10 or even 12 feet thick, a lot of times in two different layers with an airspace in between. So if they were attacked with a battering ram, they could put a hole in the first course, but because of the airspace, they wouldn't have a long enough battering ram to get into the second course. So the city would still be safe behind that wall. So here we have this wall of the city and this perimeter gate in it. Now usually in a smaller city like Bethlehem, there would be two city gates. And, and then in larger cities like the old city of Jerusalem, there were as many as seven or even more gates. Now, this typical gate was not what we consider as a gate. It's not just a pair of doors or it's not just a swinging gate element. No, not at all. It's a much more significant, really architectural piece. Rather than being just a gate, this would be a pop-out in the city wall. It would almost be a room. Many of these would be 25 to 40 feet on each side. So they're very large rooms. So you've got the wall coming across here, and all of a sudden there's this big pop-out in it. And it would have a roof over it as well. It was a very important defensive mechanism for the city. There would be houses on the corners with windows in them that they could shoot arrows from and they could hide behind the corners. There would be protection in the roof from the, uh, from the elements, and so it became a natural meeting place. They would put benches alongside of these long walls on two sides of that room, which was the gate. The other thing about the gate was that as you came up to the wall, if you're all coming towards me and this is the wall, the gate, the entrance was not right in the front. You had to come around to the side to 90 degrees to where the doors in the gate were. That was so that charging hordes of horsemen would have to slow down and make a turn if they were trying to overtake the city. 
And then once you got in the room, you had to make another 90-degree turn to get into town. All that slowing down made it obviously much more defensible. So the city gate, it was the town meeting area, and it was the, the perfect place for everybody to get together. There were even in some of the more fancy city gates little alcoves where meeting areas could actually happen in somewhat of a private fashion. The other thing about the city gate is that everyone in the city went through it every day because most of the people worked out in the field. It was an agrarian society, so everyone went out through the city gate in the morning and returned by it in the evening. Not to mention all of the visitors. So it was a, a very prominent spot. So Boaz goes to the city meeting place, to the gate. And then what happens? Well, as the gate is our first aspect of the, the layout. The second is the close relative. The close relative is what follows. Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. The close relative whom Boaz sought comes by. And do you notice what the text says there? Anybody, anybody pick it up as they went by? Not one little word in there? Behold. Remember, any time we see the word behold, we got to stop and behold what's going on. Because there's a point of emphasis being made there. The point of emphasis is, look how quickly this happened. I mean, you got a whole city that's going to be moving out. And, and, and this landowner, we know Boaz had quite a bit of money. This other relative may also have. He may not have been going out that day. He may have been hanging out in his house that day with his servants. But behold, it happens. The Lord does not make him wait providentially. Immediately we see this close relative relative who Boaz sought coming by. God's providence is, is all over this. So Boaz calls the closest relative to himself. And we remember the previous discussion of the relative closer than Boaz. Remember how we've talked about through Ruth, there are these these little things that project forward. They give us these little visual aids of things that are yet to come. We saw the first one back about this in verse 20 of chapter 2. And back in verse 20 of chapter 2, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. Naomi, of course, referring to Boaz and his provision to Ruth. And it goes on. Again, Naomi said to her, the man is our relative. He is one of our closest relatives. She understands that this is not the closest relative, and we're getting a little picture at that point. So a, a little bit of, uh, well, there's more to this. One of the relatives. And also in verse 12 of chapter 3, where Boaz himself tells Ruth that there is one who is closer than he is. In this first verse, it's really interesting in, in the Hebrew. We see it in our Bibles as well, where it says, uh, um, Boaz spoke to passing by, so he said, turn aside, friend, and sit down here. There's actually two imperative verbs that are packed right on top of another. And it would be more appropriately translated, turn and sit. Actually, just turn, sit. There is no conjunction and in the original Hebrew, which is very unusual. 
almost always with two verbs side by side, that conjunction, that and would be in there. So there's, there's a strong point of emphasis that he's making here to this element of sitting. The other thing that we want to see in this verse, and, and it's minor, but it's, there's nothing in Scripture that's minor. And it says, turn aside friend. And again, there is a footnote there for friend in, in verse 2. And um, in verse 1, rather. And it says, literally, a certain one. One translator, and I really think he hits it on the head, he translates, there's two Hebrew verbs there, or two Hebrew words, he translates this as Mr. So-and-so. You know, it's Mr. So-and-so, and and it's interesting, there's an evolution that moves through and even came to a a Spanish term that came to us as John Doe, and it all comes from this Hebrew phrase. Well, Well, what does that mean? Why is this man not mentioned? I mean, we've had Orpah mentioned in chapter 1. I mean, she was just a wife of, of one of the dead sons that's there for a short bit. Why is this man, who is the closest relative, the kinsman redeemer, not mentioned? Why is he just, oh, Mr. So-and-so? Well, I think that there is a very specific point that's being made, and that is that he held the most important role by Jewish law He was commanded to redeem, but he doesn't. And so in order to save face, the narrator has removed his name and just called him a certain one or friend. And it's interesting that all of our major translations, I think with the exception of the King James, use the word friend. But it is a a very ponderous phrase that goes in there. So the second feature of the layout here is the closest relative. So we've had the gate, the closest relative, and the third feature of the layout is the elders. The elders in verse 2. Boaz gathers ten elders together. Now, in the Old Testament city, the elders were kind of the ruling body. Even though we are in the time of the judges, you'll remember that the judge kind of moved area to area. He was in one place and he would go to the different cities. We remember that particularly if we cast a little forward to the last judge, Samuel. And as Samuel was going city to city, you remember when he was going to anoint David, he said, how am I going to do this, Lord? Saul's going to know what's going on and I'm going to get killed. And he says, no, just take a cow with you as if you were going to do a sacrifice. Well, that was the standard judge procedure. He would go city to city, and when there was something wrong, then he would take perhaps a sacrifice so as to make it right and to bring that sin offering to the Lord. So it it was a very unique time, but these elders were the ones who in each city were really those who weighed in on matters of legal or biblical content. So Boaz gathers ten elders together. It's also interesting to understand the time dynamic. Now, in our world, okay, here they are. We presume this is fairly early in the morning, although we're not given a time frame. But the, the closest relative is passing by. Boaz says, come sit. And he does come and sit. But then he goes and gets ten of the elders. Well, that's going to take a bit. It reminds us of the need for a little more patience in our world. The, the closest relative was fine to sit and wait. 
you know, I, I'm, I'm so thankful. I, I can't tell you, I think my blood pressure has gone down about 10 points from not driving in the LA freeways, just being here. You know, I get behind somebody, you know, they say sometimes people in Alabama, they're driving slow, and they're happy driving slow. And I've learned, you can be happy driving slow. It's okay. You don't have to get in a big rush to get everywhere. Well, that same kind of slowing down and smelling the roses and enjoying life, I think it's the exact mindset that's being conveyed here. It's not like, you know, I gotta go. I got something to do. I can't wait for you to go get those 10 guys. It's like, okay, uh, uh, we'll deal with the matter when, when you get them here. So he just, he waits. This idea of the, the 10 elders and the elders of the city is replete through the scriptures we see it in deuteronomy chapter 21 and verse 18 and in deuteronomy 21 18 we see a scene where if a a parent has a rebellious child and they have tried to discipline the child and he remains out of control that they are to bring the child to the elders of the city and if the child yet remains in, in, in rebellion, in drunkenness, in revelry, and in immorality, they actually, the elders of the city, will stone the child. They took uh, child-rearing pretty seriously. And, and that was what happened in Deuteronomy there, 21.18. We also see it in 2 Samuel 15.2. You remember Absalom? Absalom, David's son, who was going to take over the kingdom from him. And what does Absalom do? He hangs in the city gate and he starts talking to all of the people that are coming through. And eventually wins over the elders of the city to come against his father for the takeover. So, they, so Boaz goes and gets the ten elders and they sat down. Notice something about these two verses. Five times they're sitting down. Now, I, I think that's no accident. There, there's no reason for it, it to be there. Boaz went to the gate and sat down. Close relative who Boaz spoke said, turn aside and sit down. And he turned and he sat down. And he took the elders of the city and said, said sit down. And they sat down. You know, I wouldn't say that it's bad grammar because this is the Bible. But if I wrote something like that, you know, my professors would have torn me apart. Bible's trying to tell us something here. And there's a concept that's going on when we consider this aspect of sitting down. Can you think of any other place in Scripture where sitting down is referenced? We see it quite a bit with the Lord, don't we, at the end of His life. Yeah, exactly. In fact, the text we looked at recently in our Sunday service, Hebrews 1.3, which says, And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the words of his power. When he made purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Mark 16.9 further confirming the Lord sitting down. And, and, and the significance of sitting down is completion. Naomi said to Ruth, be patient. He will not rest until he has taken care of this matter. And it's showing us it's going to be taken care of. So the layout is set. Our first feature of redemption that honors God. God will be honored in the culmination of the bargain. All of the proper elements are brought into place. No shortcuts are taken. 
It would have been easy for Boaz to corner this closest relative and just kind of give him some song and dance and get him to release the Redeemer right. But he did not do that. He wanted to do everything in a proper fashion. And the question becomes, beloved, is this how we approach major decisions in our lives? Clearly, this is a major decision. In fact, from an earthly standpoint, the decision of choosing a wife is arguably the most important decision that'll be made. But in this or other decisions, would you be willing to be as forthright? Would you be as patient with such decisions? When we see the young people in our church, are we going to encourage them to consider that patience? It'd be, again, easy to move beyond this. But as a leader of the home, if you're considering a major decision concerning your home, are you taking time to look into God's word and to pray about it, to seek otherwise counsel? As Proverbs tells us that there is wisdom in a multitude of counselors. He didn't want to encumber this whole bargain. He, he wanted to make sure that everything happened in a right fashion. As husbands and wives, if you're considering discussing points with one another, even points of contention? Are you stopping to ponder God's word before you have those conversations? Are you setting your heart aright before you go to that? Or is it just jumping in? Or, or are you doing what, coming back and looking at 1 Peter 3 and saying, you know, I need to keep in mind that if this gets a little bit warm in our, in our fellowship here between husband and wife, that I need to not return evil for evil, nor insult for insult, but give a blessing instead. Is that the mindset that we come to before these? Or do we just launch in? I can be guilty of launching in sometimes. And I'll tell you what, I don't think I can think of once that it really went well. Because my heart's not right. I've not stopped to consider the Lord and His Word. Well, in this way, if you stop and ponder, you'll honor God in the layout of your lives. The first feature of redemption which honors God was that layout. The second feature in verses 3 to 4 is the land. The land. It says there, Then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and for the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And he said, I will redeem it. We notice here that the land is ascribed to Naomi. It is her land, but it belongs to Ruth due to the marriage to Malon. But why does Boaz mention Ruth? Because he, he wants the brother to realize the first part of the deal without this. He doesn't bring Ruth up out of the way. He doesn't want to encumber the bargain. He wants the man to understand that the first piece of the uh, of the legal arrangement is the land. He didn't want to complicate the issue by mentioning Ruth because that would simply show the necessity of the marriage to her. And Boaz wanted the first part of the land deal to stand alone. He wanted the, the man who was supposed to do the redeeming to recognize his right and his opportunity. Boaz also mentions Elimelech. And it, Elimelech is so important in this. 
because this is the way that the continuity of the land goes on. Keep in mind that in this world, failure to redeem this land was a covenant violation. God had delineated the land to each family. Each man had his portion of land. And if that man died without children, then this was the whole idea behind the kinsman redeemer. That someone would come, would bring a child as an heir to that man, although he had departed without children, and his name would be proliferated. So as, as that idea goes forward, then we recognize the importance of carrying this land forward. And this is why Boaz's efforts were so honorable in bringing the land into the, and through the family. Boaz presents the deal to the relative and he, and he makes mention of what's being proposed, that is the redemption of the land. And he does so in a way in front of the elders that makes it a legal transaction. So should there be a time where they come up later to say, you know, something's not right? He has those ten men who have waited to say, yes, this was all done in accord to our law and properly. The second feature of the land is the close relative's response. He accepts the deal at the end of verse 3. Now, we don't know if Ruth was watching, but you can expect there's a strong likelihood that she came out to see what was going on. Keep in mind, this is a large room with very, very busy area with people coming and going. She probably was somewhere in the outskirts watching this. But based on the, the typical public meeting and the way things went, she may have been in earshot. And can you imagine at this response? Boaz's heart must have just sunk and Ruth's as, Ruth's as well, you will do it? For some reason, it seems he thought perhaps not. This is something we can relate to, isn't it, beloved? Sometimes things are going just great in our lives, and all of a sudden, things just dive off the edge. Can, you know, Glenn, I mean, how can you relate to that in such ways? I mean, all of a sudden, everything's going along, regular, Kathy has a doctor's visit, and boom, we may be dealing with a serious cancer issue. That's the way our lives are. Our legs get taken right out from underneath us. It's often the case with kids and young people. They have their hearts set on a particular college or maybe a gift for Christmas or, or a birthday. And you don't get it and all of a sudden you're thinking, how can this happen? I, I've, I've moved this all along. I've done all the preparatory work. And then that sadness is immediately evident when all of a sudden... The world gets turned upside down. This must have been Boaz's reaction. And certainly Ruth's if she was in attendance. But oftentimes God allows this. He allows it, beloved, to test our faith. To, to help us see and to trust him more. And so Boaz honorably presents the land. The second feature that honors God. And the third feature is the lady in verses 5 to 6. Now, the close relative has agreed to redeem the land. So Boaz tells him the second part. Not only is there the land, but you also have to redeem the lady. Because she goes along with this to continue the land. Perhaps, perhaps the close relative thought, didn't, didn't recognize this idea that it was just Naomi. Well, she's past childbearing years. We've seen this in verse 1. So he's thinking he's just going to get the land. No, there's more to this picture. And this certainly must have been a challenging point. Ruth was a catch. 
I mean, Boaz is excited. He makes proclamation of her being younger and staying away from the other servants because she's attractive and, and he wants her protected. So what's he thinking when he has to offer this as well? Well, the plans which were rooted in Boaz's heart and in the hearts of Ruth are, are now perhaps in danger and jeopardy. Well, but the relative says that he cannot redeem her. And, and there could be many facets to why this happens. He could be married without children. In such case, if he would have children with Ruth, then those children would become the inheritors of his land as well as Ruth's. So that would be a problem with regards to the Jewish legal system as well. Or he could be married with children. And this could create a potential of having to share his current land with the offspring of a second wife. Now, we aren't told the particulars, but whatever it is, he can't move forward. Can't you almost feel the sigh from Boaz <laughs> as he's told him that he's clear to redeem her himself? The plans which, again, are rooted in his heart and in Ruth's are now able to be moved to move forward Boaz can marry this dear lady who's been working in this field these many months no longer needing to glean in the harvest God had prepared a way that she would be restored redeemed by her relative and remarried in an honorable fashion in a God honoring fashion this is that third feature of redemption which honors God Beloved, Boaz's redemption of Ruth is the focus of this book. Boaz, again, is the picture of Christ. Ruth is in need of this physical redemption, and yet man is in need of spiritual redemption in this same way. In all of these things, we understand that honor is at the core. And every time something happens in this book, it drives us deeper to recognize that in all that we do, it must be done in a way that considers God and that brings Him honor and glory. And that there are no nuances of our life that are not to be considered in this way. Many things about this particular section of Scripture could have been done in a different way that might have seemed more simple, might have seemed more sure from a human point of view. But they don't occur that way because the point is to honor God in everything. Because as we do that, we know He will honor us. Have we not seen that in our own lives? As we seek to honor God, does He not bless us beyond anything that we can conceive of or expect? You know, it's been said you can't outgive God. And that is exactly right, whether it be in financial areas or in service areas or in areas of bringing him honor and glory. And this is what we have to consider, is how we can better bring honor and glory to Christ. Because as we focus on this, we will have the blessings that we so richly desire. Because our lives have been lived in a way that seeks at every turn to recognize God's word and to honor him in the way that we live. So I pray that's what we'll consider and take from this incredible introduction to this last chapter of the book of Ruth.